listening to The Sport Market. Here to rack the bulls and bears of sport business, your host, Tom Mayonect. What makes the association, the NBA, the best marketed league in North America? What makes the National Football League, the Shield, the juggernaut of sport television and television in general that it is? What's the real economic impact of stadiums and arenas constructed for the purpose of hosting professional sports events and teams? And why hasn't there been a Canadian-based Stanley Cup champion since 1993? Those are some of the overarching sport business storylines that we're going to kick around with you here on this special edition of The Sport Market where we're rating and debating the bulls and bears of sport business on the Sportsnet Radio Network and the Sport Market Radio Network. And we'll start with the NBA. Very topical, very timely, what with last Sunday's NBA exhibition game between the Toronto Raptors and the Sacramento Kings taking place at Rogers Arena. Now, this was the culmination of Raptors training camp held Uh, yet again here in British Columbia. And there's a real love affair between the Raptors organization and the BC market for training camp purposes. And there's a, a number of reasons for that. But one of them is just how strongly supported the Raptors have always been, whether it's in Vancouver or Victoria, hosting their training camps here in British Columbia. It also gives the team an opportunity to sort of gel outside of the glare of the Toronto market, which, of course, they'll have plenty of time to deal with over the course of the 82-game regular season that is the NBA. Of course, this year with the in-season tournament sort of carved out and a special trophy at the, uh, the end of the road for that. But this is the eighth time that the Toronto Raptors have held their training camp in British Columbia, and the sixth time in the greater Vancouver area. Of course, back in the day, it was at the Fortia Sport and Health uh, facility, which I had the privilege of being involved with, with my business partner at Emblematica, Anthony Abrahams. And of course, we were supporting Scott Cousins and his team on a very ambitious philanthropic project. Unfortunately, Uh, the kind of project that just was so allergic to the pandemic. And the pandemic was uh, the final blow for a project that was just starting to get to break even, but in the process had established unbelievably high standards and special standards and unique standards in terms of sport medicine and science. That's one of the reasons why the Raptors were drawn to Burnaby that year back in the day in the mid-2010s And that was, of course, one of the um, uh, uh, trends for the Raptors. They had all this additional sport medicine and, and science support that they could call on here, making training camp in the Vancouver area pretty safe and 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 sound proposition for Masai Ujiri and the and the franchise. But you 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 think of all those years ago. Now, of course, this year, they're at the same building. It's now known as the Christine Sinclair Community Center, obviously now owned and operated by the city of Burnaby. And the jewel in the crown, the little cherry in the cake at the end of the training camp is the Raptors doing their uh, postseason or their preseason. Hopefully they'll be in the postseason, do their preseason game 
at Rogers Arena, and they did it against the Sacramento Kings. And part of the discussion, whenever the Raptors hold a training camp here in British Columbia, especially when it's accented and augmented by a regular by a, a preseason game, the debate always comes back. Will the NBA ever come back to Vancouver? Would the NBA ever work again in Vancouver? And it's a debate that's as topical as the entire history of the Raptors, especially since they've been coming back here to Vancouver after the Grizzlies left in 2001. And, you know, my, my thoughts on it are that you never say never. I've been in the business long enough that I've tried to discipline myself and, and, and learn to say you never say never because in the business of sport, I suppose like the business of business and the business of life, you should never say never. And I'm certainly in that camp when it comes to whether or not the NBA would ever come back to Vancouver. And I believe it will. I've firmly been in that camp and I'm in that camp for a number of reasons, but I'll put one caveat on it right off the top. It has to be exactly the right situation. This can't be a team that pays a $2 billion plus expansion fee just to get in the game and then has to build another $800 million to $1 billion NBA arena somewhere in greater Vancouver. I mean, you're talking $4 billion, you know, coming out of the gates, three and a half, four billion dollars coming out of the gates. That is not for the, that's not for the faint of heart. You really have to have a very specific set of circumstances, either ownership by Canuck Sports and Entertainment. And so far they've indicated it's not on their radar. Although, you know, I can tell you that Francesco Aquilini and some of his top executives over the years have kicked the tires on a number of different uh, situations. And I did believe, you know, maybe 10 years ago that the Sacramento Kings could be a team that's ripe for relocation. And because really that's the first question that you have to ask whenever you debate, hey, will the NBA ever come back to Vancouver? Well, first of all, there has to be a team there has to be a pathway to get into the NBA. And right now, there isn't a single weak link among the 30 franchises in the NBA. You had the Sacramento Kings in real tough shape. There was ownership transition and issues around the New Orleans uh, uh, Hornets and then the New Orleans Jazz before that. You had issues around the Sacramento Kings. Even the Indiana Pacers in the university hotbed that is Indianapolis sort of used the relocation card to try to negotiate a better deal with the city and county anchored in Indianapolis. But that's that, that was then. This is now. Tell me an NBA franchise that is in such a weak position that it's contemplating relocation. Yes, I, I can't either. So it has to be by expansion. And the NBA is finally, 
under the commissionership of Adam Silver, who pound for pound, I think, is the most progressive commissioner in all of North American professional sport, they're finally now getting into the expansion discussion. And they're going to be very, very deliberate. So far, it's more, you know, return to Seattle and Las Vegas that have tended to be spoken uh, about. But I do believe in some future expansion, it might be like we're definitely talking well more than five years and it could very well be 10 years or more. But the NBA will be back in Vancouver and it'll be back in Vancouver and it'll work under a very specific set of circumstances. And those circumstances are, it has to be a situation where they can't be expected to pay an expansion fee and building construction. So back to the Aquilinis and Canuck Sports and Entertainment, if it's not outright owned by the Canucks, the new NBA franchise in Vancouver would have to have a real preferred status, a favored nation status. You can't come in and, 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 and spend all that money on an expansion fee and then pay rent, pay premium rent for every home game in that 82-game season, 41, of course, at home. So the circumstances that are absolutely fundamental is it would have to be some preferred relationship with the Canucks. Then you don't have to, with Rogers Arena in place, you don't have to contemplate building a new arena from scratch. And if you had a preferred relationship, almost a revenue sharing deal of some kind, or at least you know, a baseline plus revenue sharing incentives. Just something that wasn't, you know, a blank check of paying rent to a landlord. That isn't going to attract too many investors. And that's the other thing. If it's not going to be Canuck Sports and Entertainment, it'll almost certainly, when you consider the price tag, have to be a consortium style ownership. And as a Pacific Gateway city, there's possibilities down the road, current political climate aside, there's possibilities down the road where you could have a, a Chinese investment group of young high-tech investors out of China or somewhere in Asia, potentially an Asia-Canadian consortium. But you'd have to bring a lot of people to the table because very few single individuals will have the $2 billion plus for the expansion fee, no matter how many years that's paid over. And, and, and very few will have the appetite for the high risk of a rental situation. So again, that's why I keep on coming back to under the right circumstances, the right ownership, the right uh, uh, reduced risk, the NBA can and will come back. And, 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 and why it will come back and be successful under those circumstances is because the NBA is a heck of a lot more international in 2023 going into 2024 
than it was back in the mid-1990s. The NBA is a much more international league. You've got a couple of dozen Canadians. Imagine that back in the early days of the Raptors and the Grizzlies. Imagine if you had that many Canadians, you'd have even more interest from casual sports fans who would buy tickets and experiment with the product because they'd be drawn by those angles. Imagine today, and I know from talking to friends in, in, in Toronto, when you get a Wiggins or a, a Shea Gilgis Alexander or an RJ Barrett or any of the Canadians who are among the top NBA uh, players right now, that is a little bit of an extra boost. There's a little bit of an extra buzz. And I'm talking well beyond the seats that are set aside for family and friends when those players go to Scotiabank Arena to play the Raptors. But it's a completely different situation. You had Steve Nash in the NBA back in the day, and that's an entire other conversation. I'll just put it out there. If Steve Nash had been drafted by the Vancouver Grizzlies, if Steve Nash had been acquired on draft night by the Vancouver Grizzlies, I believe there's a good chance the franchise would still be here today. Even if Steve Nash was one-tenth or even one-one-hundredth of the player, he wound up becoming as a back-to-back NBA MVP because it would have been just a strong, strong connection between the market and Steve Nash, and he certainly would have been the face of the franchise back in the day. But again, completely different discussion. But this, this, this NBA has a lot more Canadians, it has a lot more Europeans, it has a lot more South Americans, and that's a really good fit with Vancouver because guess what? Vancouver's a much more international city than it was in the mid-1990s when the Vancouver Grizzlies were trying to get themselves established. But the moment they got ripped out of the Orca Bay womb, it was lights out. It was just going to be really difficult. Instead of sharing expenses and arena operations costs with an NHL franchise, you had the Michael Heisley ownership paying rent to Canuck Sports and Entertainment, and you essentially had them uh, building their own practice facilities, uh, albeit you know on a temporary basis. Uh, you had them building their own marketing staff. That is not the economic formula for the NBA. Again, it has to be preferred relationship where you're not paying outright rent. But I think it's going to happen. And again, that more international Vancouver, especially as a Pacific Gateway uh, city, and that more international NBA means... You're listening to The Sport Market. Once again, here's your host, Tom Mayonect. We've been talking, of course, about all the speculation. Every time that the Raptors bring the training camp to British Columbia, especially in Vancouver, the the speculation and the debate that is triggered in terms of uh, will the NBA ever come back? And if it does, would the NBA be successful here? And of course, I've tried to rule out some of those thoughts. But let's just pivot quickly to one of the other related overarching sport business storylines. And that is... NBA marketing. 
and why MBA marketing is out of the box, why MBA marketing is best in class, and essentially in terms of promoting the personalities and promoting its stars, there isn't a league that does it as well as the NBA, even the NFL. NFL is very much anchored on the marketing of its quarterbacks in particular. You know, the odd wide receiver, uh, uh, the odd running back will get, you know, a little bit more attention. But essentially, you look at all the sport business indicators in terms of fan recognition, in terms of awards, in terms of MVPs, in terms of endorsements. I mean, it's almost exclusively quarterbacks, and that, that makes sense. The NBA is as good as it is from a marketing point of view because it markets to young people and it markets to young people of all ages. And what I mean by that is they don't do focus groups with adults. Back in my time in the NBA, and I was the first executive employee of the Toronto Raptors back in the day during the naming of the franchise in 1994, uh, the special event hosting that the Raptors had and hosting the FIBA uh, World Championship of Basketball at what was then Sky Dome and is now Rogers Center. Of course, that was the original home for the Raptors for those first three years, which is unbelievable to reflect back on now that uh, they were able to pull it off, uh, you know, the way they did and 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 thrive until such time as they moved into what is now Scotiabank Arena. But they don't do adult focus groups. My experience in the NBA is that everything is targeted on data mined from the perspectives of 12 to 18-year-olds, in particular, 12 to 14-year-olds. And the theory being, if you're connecting to young people, you're going to connect to young thinking people of all ages, including those with the disposable income or the corporate situations to be able to afford buying NBA season tickets, if not NBA half seasons or, or quarter packs, buying NBA merchandise and subscribing to NBA gaming devices and, and, and other business uh, opportunities. So that's the whole marketing slant of the NBA. Make yourself appealing to young people, focus on that and then everybody else you need to come along for the ride will come along for the ride by osmosis. And an example of that approach to marketing to kids, marketing to teens, was the very naming of the Toronto Raptors back in the day. And, you know, most people know this now because there's been enough books written on the launch of the Raptors and um, the history of the Raptors that you know, we all know that, that John Bitov was very predisposed to a dinosaur name for the franchise even before we began formal research and the formal name game. And he was predisposed that way simply because he just kept on seeing and hearing how much his kids were into dinosaurs. And of course, this was mid-1990s, early 1990s. Uh, it was the time of Jurassic Park, the original. And raptors had become a pretty hot dinosaur commodity. Sure, the T-Rexes 
continued to be, but John and his family were particularly intrigued by raptors. And when it came to that time, just to jump ahead a little bit, there was no question, although T-Rex was one of the suggested names and one of the names that was studied from an NBA point of view and from a franchise point of view, all along there was more of a lean towards the Raptors. And at the end of the day, we said, okay, T-Rex, and I got a smile on my face here because this is part of what I mean about being a kid in a candy store and, and, and marketing to kids and thinking like kids kind of thing. But the T-Rex is a solitary hunter. Raptors hunt in teams. And that's why it made that very first Rice Krispies box that I had the privilege of helping to design and populate with content and themes. Snap, crackle, and pop, of course, all in their Raptors gear and the, the red with purple dinosaur on the cover of the of the cereal box everything was done with kids in mind now it was a bit of a high risk strategy because there were a lot of critics saying you can't name a franchise after after animals made popular in a movie but there was enough confidence based on just how popular in general dinosaurs have been the last quarter century uh, the, the last 50 years, I should say, and especially continuing to be so over the last you know, quarter century, that it was an inspired choice. And it's almost like now, it, it, when we first launched, people were like, are you kidding me, the Raptors? But now you, you can't even imagine the team being called anything else. But I'll tell you a little bit of a story from the vault in terms of Again, the NBA approach. The NBA, there was no such thing as a bad idea. And the creative department of NBA properties, and this rubbed off on the franchise, you know, the Raptors when, when I was there, and then the Grizzlies when I made the move to become a vice president of communications and public relations for the Grizzlies in, uh, in 1995. So moving cross-court at that time had unique perspective in terms of the whole naming process. And again, it was targeted to kids. So we had the Raptors as a contender. T-Rex was a contender. The Grizzlies, the Toronto Grizzlies, was being prototyped for the Toronto franchise. We all know it wound up being passed on to the Vancouver franchise and becoming the Vancouver Grizzlies, much better fit in Vancouver than in Toronto. But we also had a lot of response through the name game, through our focus groups, through merchandising research and discussions on Dragons. And I'll say it now, Dragons was a finalist in Toronto, but I believe that if the NBA ever came back to Vancouver, it would have to be considered as the number one naming candidate for the franchise. It just makes way too much sense in terms of A, how important the Asian community would be in supporting a new NBA franchise, and B, reflecting Vancouver's status as a Pacific Gateway city. So, but it's not a, a new consideration by the NBA. This is 1994. We were talking and prototyping 
Vancouver Raptors, uh, sorry, Toronto Raptors, Toronto Grizzlies, Toronto Dragons, even the Toronto Bobcats. Bobcats was a very popular name in the, in the name game. We never seriously advanced the Huskies. And, and I argue if the situation had presented itself like in 2023 and there had never been a Toronto Raptors, you'd, you'd give some serious thought to the name the Toronto Huskies, bringing back the original NBA Toronto franchise name from back in the day, obviously updating it and stylizing it. But from a storytelling situation as a Canadian franchise, you could do a lot with Huskies. And so much marketing comes down to storytelling, just simple storytelling. And the more engaging your storytelling is, the better your marketing is, the better the engagement you get from prospective customers. So, but we never seriously advanced the Huskies. The focus was on, obviously, the Raptors and T-Rex. We probably felt that Grizzlies, Bobcats, and Dragons were second best direction for us than the Raptors. But think of what happened. All the stuff that we did in 1994 and early 1995 wound up being used by the NBA and and, in other applications. So the Grizzlies wound up becoming the name of the Vancouver franchise. Bobcats became the name of the Charlotte expansion franchise that replaced the Hornets when they relocated to New Orleans to replace the hole that was left by the the New Orleans uh, 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 Jazz. And, 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 And then Dragons never really saw the light of day, but they were very close in New Jersey. Trust me. They were very close in New Jersey, the New Jersey Nets at the time, to becoming the New Jersey Swamp Dragons. You can Google it. You can see what those designs were. Those were the original designs that we prototyped in Toronto in partnership and in collaboration with NBA properties. So again, just, you know, the research done in Toronto had a big impact on other franchises, including the Grizzlies, including the Charlotte Bobcats for a number of years, and including at least consideration and discovery status with the, uh, uh, the Dragons in New Jersey. And you look at all the marketing that was done, high school trips and assemblies, focus groups with kids, Cineplex Odeon, marketing effort done in conjunction with Cassette, our advertising agency back in the day and sponsored by Sears back in the day. Everything was directed to kids. And that's why the NBA is the best marketed league in North America because it markets to that next, it's consistently marketing to the next generation of fans. And by the way, just quick postscript on basketball back to, you know, whether Vancouver will ever host an NBA team again. And I believe it will. And I actually believe that Montreal is a real, real candidate. Make no mistake. There's been a lot of discussions over the last 10 years, the last five to seven years in particular, you know, before the pandemic anyway, about Montreal's candidacy for NBA expansion at some point down the road. And again, that would have to be in partnership with the Montreal Canadiens for it to really make business sense. But 
I'm bullish on on two, possibly three NBA franchises in Canada because we ain't seen nothing yet in terms of the growth of basketball. Basketball is growing, but with 100 Division One NCAA players like almost every year being groomed and 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 cultivated for NBA uh, selection and NBA drafting, you're going to get more and more Canadians. And the more Canadians you have playing in the NBA, the more real that dream is to Canadian kids that they too can become an NBA player, whether they're being brought up in the basketball factory that's Brampton, Ontario, or in the lower mainland of British Columbia, or elsewhere across the country. And I do believe that now with a couple of dozen Canadians in the NBA and with the participation in the Olympics in Paris 2024 guaranteed, there is a lot of upside for basketball here in Canada. And imagine a Canadian gold medal in basketball or even making it to the Olympic final in basketball. That impact on the sport at the grassroots level, especially with infrastructure very strong at high school basketball and elementary school basketball across the country. The Canadian Elite Basketball League is doing a terrific job. And then you've got the the G League feeding into the, the Toronto Raptors. I... I believe it's a toss-up as to whether it's basketball or soccer that grows faster and grows bigger over the next five to ten years. And, of course, soccer will be driven in large part by the opportunity to co-host FIFA World Cup 2026. Next up, what makes the NFL destination television? What makes it such a juggernaut? We kick that around with you on this special edition of The Sport Market on the Sportsnet Radio Network and the Sport Market Radio Network. You're listening to the Sport Market. Once again, here's your host, Tom Mayonet. What makes the NFL such a sport television juggernaut? Such a broadcast gorilla? It is Destination TV. Now, that's an oversimplification, but the approach that the NFL takes to scheduling its season, structuring its season, and then structuring every week within that season is such a big part of the success of the NFL as a television property. And make no mistake, when you're at almost $20 billion industry, which the NFL is, and you've got $11 billion of that being driven by your national media rights, it basically, that's the definition in, in, in the dictionary beside juggernaut is the NFL's approach to television. And you've got 45 of 50 of the top television shows each year in U.S. television being NFL games. That really puts it into perspective. You add up all the other leagues together and they don't equal the television audiences that the NFL has. Now, make no mistake as well, the social side of the NFL is a big part of it, and it's driven in large part by fantasy football and sports betting. And just, But it goes back to, well, why is it such a popular betting property? Well, because it's made to be so social. Why is it made to be so social? Because any given Sunday between the week after Labor Day weekend 
And the first week of February, there's nothing more important for a lot of casual sports fans and hardcore sports fans than their fill of NFL football. And if you're engaged that way and you're able to structure your social life on the weekend around NFL football, you're more likely to talk about it. You're more likely to get into fantasy leagues. You're more likely to consider prop bets and other bets. So make no mistake, yes, fantasy football and sports betting is a big reason why the NFL is such a big business. But it all comes back to the destination television. So first of all, the way the season is structured, it's 18 weeks over 17, 17 games over 18 weeks. That's a very compressed regular season. It's the most compressed, it's the tightest of all regular seasons in North American professional sport. You basically don't have to worry about losing the attention span of your fans when you're that intense and that focused. And that's very smart by the NFL because they always leave their fans wanting more. And then by the time you get after after Super Bowl, you wind up already starting to look forward to the combines and the NFL draft in April and and then preseason and, of course, free agency and all those things. But it comes down to how compact the schedule is. That's one reason why it's such a hot television property. The second reason relates to how it's structured week in, week out. And check it out. We mentioned any given Sunday. 80% of the NFL... 80% plus of the NFL is played on Sundays. And that Sunday has become religion, especially in the United States, but increasingly so in Canada, where television numbers have continued to climb around NFL football. And so you have such a focus on Sunday. You've got the two windows during the day, and then the primetime window that NBC produces for Sunday Night Football. And then you get into Monday Night Football, ESPN and ABC's property south of the border. And then you get into Thursday Night Football, which wasn't always a big deal. Now, it still is arguably the, the junior of the three in a big way. But Amazon is working hard making the streaming option, and that's what it is. It's not just streaming rights. It's all rights. So you basically have to be getting your NFL Thursday Night Football from Amazon one way or the other, directly or indirectly. In the U.S., you have to be a subscriber to Amazon to really be able to watch NFL Thursday Night Football. And so... It's so compact, just like the regular season. Every week is so compact. The big focus is on Sunday night, uh, on Sundays, three sets of games. A lot of you do triple headers every Sunday, or at least you watch part of those three games every Sunday. And then beyond that, it's Monday night football and Thursday night football. Now, Late in the season, you get into Saturday football. Then you get into, of course, the special games on Thanksgiving Thursday. 
and now on Christmas Day. And it's inevitable that the NFL will do choose the night football next. Now, they've got to be careful, and I've said this before, about not cooking the goose too quickly. But right now, every time the NFL rolls out another television property, another night of football, it's been well-received. They haven't reached overload yet, and I don't think they will. But those are my takes as to why the NFL is such a juggernaut. And it's so simple. Keep the fans wanting more. We'll close out this special edition of the Sport Market next with a few thoughts on stadiums and arenas and why Canada or Canadian-based teams haven't won a Stanley Cup since 1993. You're listening to this special edition of the Sport Market on the Sportsnet Radio Network and the Sport Market Radio Network. You're listening to the Sport Market on Sportsnet 650. We'll close out this hour of the Sport Market with a few takes on stadiums and arenas and their economic impact and why a Canadian team hasn't won a Stanley Cup since 1993. On stadiums and arenas, listen, there's a lot of sport economists who suggest that there's no benefit from the operation of professional sport franchises to a local economy and that the spin-off is very limited. And, and their main argument, and I get it, is that it's essentially replacement. In other words, if people weren't spending money on sport, they'd likely be spending it elsewhere, and so there wouldn't be uh, too much of a different impact on a local economy or a regional economy. But I will say two things to you here when it comes to economic impact of sport and then stadiums and arenas. Number one, eyeball checks. Look at where stadiums have been built and look at economic development around those stadiums. It doesn't happen by magic. It doesn't happen without any assistance. It happens because of traffic to that stadium. And secondly, downtown versus suburban. If you want to have more economic impact, then you plan your stadium to be downtown. And if you want to have the best economic impact of all, you essentially do a stadium cluster downtown. And you look throughout North America, even Vancouver. Vancouver has a cluster of two, a one-two punch of BC Place and Rogers Arena. And think of what that was in the years after 1986, and even into the early 1990s, and what it's become now as Vancouver Sports and Entertainment District. And think of what used to be dilapidated warehouses and rail lands has now become Yale Town and very vibrant parts of downtown that continue to be big factors in the local economy. Seattle, the South Downtown Entertainment District, Soto, where you got Lumen Field and T-Mobile Park, some wanted the NBA slash NHL arena there as well in South downtown. I was among the advocates saying that if you want to continue to make this a really good urban result, you, you, you have the public transit, you have um, uh, hotels, bars, restaurants, all created in that area. You train fans to go to the same place. Now in Seattle, you've still got the two and that's strong and that's completely revitalized that part of the city, Soto, but you've now got Seattle Center as the home of the Kraken. Toronto 
it, it's not a classic Detroit-like uh, downtown stadium cluster, but you've got Rogers Center, Scotiabank Arena, and BMO Field all within a couple of clicks of each other. And especially Rogers Center and Scotiabank Arena being just a short walk between the two buildings. That used to be Brownlands. It's now a very cool part of Toronto. The Expos 2.0, they're talking about a potential ballpark in Griffintown, uh, basically just a few blocks south of the Bell Center. Philadelphia has got Lincoln Financial Field, Wells Cargo Center, and Citizens Bank Park, home of the uh, Eagles, uh, the Flyers, Sixers, and Phillies, respectively. It's not quite downtown, but it's sort of right on, just on the outskirts. Detroit, you can see the three arenas from each other, Ford Field, Little Caesars Arena, and Comerica Park. So, to me, the eyeball check in each of those areas shows that there's something to spinoff. And if you do it downtown, you maximize the spinoff. And very quickly, we'll get into this in future editions of the sport market. We often talk about it. Not a single Stanley Cup in Canada since 1993. I was at that game at the old Montreal Forum. And if you would have told me back then that there wouldn't be another uh, 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 Stanley Cup winner in, 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 in 30 years, I would have said, you're crazy. But that's exactly what's happened. Now, came close in 93 and 94 to having back-to-back Canadian teams win. Canucks came very close. They pushed the Rangers to Game 7. Then you had Tampa Bay and Calgary. Calgary came close, Game 7. The next year after the lockout, Edmonton came close, falling to Carolina in Game 7. Then you had the uh, Sens taken out by the Anaheim Ducks in 5. Then the Canucks... Boston, we all know what happened in Game 7 there. And then the special bonus, unexpected 2021 Stanley Cup final between Montreal and Tampa Bay, that went five games. Uh, essentially, Montreal was outmatched there, but it was, it was quite the run. Is it currency exchange issues? You know, from an operating point of view, that might be an issue. But in terms of players... It's not as much of an issue as you think because they're paid in U.S. dollars. So it's actually an advantage to be buying groceries and stuff like that in Canada. From a tax point of view, I think that's often overstated. Alberta tax isn't as, as, as much as California tax south of the border. That's much more like Ontario and B.C. is much more like California. So I don't buy that as being the single determinant. There's the issue of pressure and scrutiny and recruitment. There's a lot of players who prefer to make their money without it becoming such a disruption to them and their families. I think for every one of those, there's players who thrive in being in a hockey market. But I do think there's so much pressure of being in Canada that it becomes a different kind of lifestyle if you're playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs or the Vancouver Canucks or any of the seven Canadian teams compared to playing for the Carolina Hurricanes or, uh, you know, the Nashville Predators, make no mistake, those are becoming pretty good hockey markets. But it's nothing like the media scrutiny that you get, especially in the three biggest markets of Montreal, Toronto, and Calgary. More on that 
in the coming weeks and months here at our new home of Sportsnet 650 in Vancouver, the Sportsnet Radio Network and the Sport Market Radio Network. You've been listening to a special edition of us rating debating the bulls and bears of sport business.